In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. On the Sunday before the Feast of the Incarnation of our Savior, the Church leads us back through that long line of the human ancestry of our God. The Gospel of the Begats, which attaches to the mutual love of men and women, which manifests as the importance of the family, the begatting also of faith. These are men of faith. They are not infallible, and they were not free from sin. And in the instance of some of these men and women, the sins are rather chilling and disturbing. The worst things that we can imagine. And this underlines the human predicament into which God himself enters. And as we know, the culmination in the mind of the Gospeler is the Virgin Mary, the summit of all that piety of the Old Testament, in whose personality converges all the great things of those men and women who, in spite of their sinfulness, of their human limitations and weaknesses, preserved faith and preserved it as the epistle points out so graphically, sometimes in the face of terrible odds. The faith of martyrdom, and martyrdom of the most painful, of the most ugly sort. So it is that as we come to the end of this long and arduous period of fasting and praying, which precedes this great winter Pascha, this great winter feast of Nativity and Theophany, which are seen by the Church as a single feast, not only by the Church, but in the West, as the old carol, The Twelve Days of Christmas, shows us, hearkening back to the very origins of the Western liturgical life, which simply reflects the life of the Church in the East. So our own roots as Western people are not different from the roots of those who either lived in the Eastern Mediterranean or were converted to that presentation of the faith. And this faith is accounted as righteousness to those whose behavior on given occasions was most unrighteous, most spectacularly unrighteous. So this is not for us merely a record, a kind of documenting of human faith. It is for us a gospel of hope as well. You and I have had our bad days. You and I have had our bad hours. You and I are guilty also of sins, of failures, of shortcomings. But we know that Christ has not called 
the well to salvation, but the sick, not the righteous, but sinners. And so it is very important for Matthew to include in his record of the human ancestry of our Savior everybody, all kinds of people, all men and women. And Matthew, who is a very learned Jew, writing for Jews, knows perfectly well that he has tailored the documentation. And that is in itself a great signal to us. 14, 14, and 14 generations are given to us. In other words, what Matthew considers significant and what Matthew considers important is that there is a pattern to Christian truth. There is a patterning to faith. And he demonstrates this by tailoring the story to make for us a pattern. Because the assertion of the pattern is one of the important things that this particular gospel wants to teach us. And we ourselves are constantly encouraged by the Church to fall into patterns with our own daily lives. Here is not merely a great theological truth, something perhaps a little abstract, but a great truth of human psychology and human experience. We get up in the morning, we make the sign of the cross, we say our morning prayers, we have our breakfast, we go to work, we go to school, we come home, we have our dinner, we see the family, we have our interaction, we make the sign of the cross, we venerate our archons, we say the prayers, and so on and so forth. Certain days are fasting days, other days pattern themselves as festal days. Throughout the period of the year, there is an alternation between feasts and fasts. And so there is a great pattern which comes to me and which I appropriate personally. And it's not always so easy to keep the pattern. I am a priest since 1969, and I would like one dollar for everyone who tells me, Father, I don't keep the fast very strictly. There was that day that... and so forth. So we break our patterns. And it's good that we confess when we break our patterns. Father, I'm having trouble of praying, because I'm very tired, work is very hard, and so I've been falling asleep before I finish my prayers, or uh, I'm saying my prayers while I am asleep. You know, or I just fall into bed and I ask God to forgive me for not saying my prayers at all. So we break the pattern. It's a, a small thing. It's a small thing if we realize that it is a big thing. <laughs> if we know in our hearts how large a thing this is, then it is not so much uh, a black mark against our soul. Provided we are struggling against it, that we keep our integrity and that we try to reassert the pattern in our, in our lives of, with some vehemence, some fierceness, some ferocity. But these patterns are very, very, very important. And those who follow the pattern with humility and with simplicity of heart and with a peaceful heart and a peaceful mind will learn over time what is the true power of the pattern of Christian truth. For we are not Platonists, and neither was one of the persons who was named in that vast list 
given to us by St. Matthew. That is to say, we do not think that the body is for nothing, or that it is inherently wicked and cannot possibly be saved. We are not like the great Neoplatonist Plotinus, who, his disciple Porphyry said, every morning he woke up, he looked at himself in a mirror, and he was ashamed to find himself in a body. Our religion asserts something rather different about the body, doesn't it? We say that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the temple is built according to a certain architecture, and architecture is pattern. The pattern of Christian truth, the pattern of Christian faith, the pattern of Christian hope. And at the heart of the pattern is Jesus Christ, our Savior. And he is coming as the fulfillment of the hopes of all those men and women who lived their daily lives like you and me live our daily lives, with ups and downs, with understandings and misunderstandings, with strengths and moments of achievement and with defeats and weaknesses, with moments in which we are unable to cope with our passions and we commit some dreadful sin which disturbs our conscience constantly. And it does not let go of us, and we find that we cannot let go of it. And even sometimes when we confess such a thing, it still does not release its grip very quickly. And then if it releases its grip and leaves us, we find that we can still feel scar tissue. If the sin is serious enough. The pattern of the struggle for human holiness in the face of human sinfulness. These are the things that the Church wants to put before our eyes and through our ears, our hearing, to put into our mind this week as we prepare for the celebration of the winter Pascha. Pascha Pascha, the one in the spring, celebrates the going from death to eternal life of Jesus Christ. The going from this dimension of space and time to a place which is no place where there is no space and time. We cannot even conceive of it except that God is there. About it we know just that. It's enough to know. This is a Pascha in the other direction. The passage is from heaven to earth. This is where the shape of the bridge begins to come clear to us. You know, we are visited by all kinds of people from abroad and from around the country, and we are always very surprised because one of the things that they all want to do, and it doesn't seem like much to us and it's not on our list, and you know, they want to see the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> so, okay, we know how to get there. But we're always wondering, are they going to see the Golden Gate Bridge? Because sometimes it's shrouded in fog. And several people have come 3,000 miles or more, and we've taken them to the Golden Gate Bridge and we'll say, well, you know, you're on it. You can't see it, but it is there because, as you know, San Francisco is foggy town. And sometimes the fog is so thick. But, you know, uh, having lived in the area, there are times when you see the, 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 the Golden Gate Bridge just as a vague shape and then it becomes clearer and clearer as the wind moves the, the fog away. And this is what is happening with this feast. Not everybody in Israel had a very clear idea of what was the Messiah. How was he to come? You remember 
when the wise men come to Herod the king, he has to turn to his his uh, wise ones, and they he has to ask them, where, where is the Messiah from? And they're thinking, they say, oh, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So this is not running around in the heads of everybody. But the Gospel this morning gives us that, that thin thread of memory of people who are yearning and straining towards they know not what very clearly, but they have great faith in God that something is going to happen for sure, definitely. About that we are certain. And that is faith. This faith was laid down by who? What's the answer? Anybody know? It's Abraham. Abraham is the man of faith. And why he is faithful is that God appears to him and with his voice he says, Leave your place and Ur of the Chaldees and come to a place that I'm going to show you. And we think, oh, well, yes, yes, yes. Well, we're a mobile society. We know what it means to get into a U-Haul and drive to the other end of the country. It's no big deal. But for them it was a very big deal. Because they didn't have any kind of social services, and they didn't have a police force, and they didn't have any protection, not men, not women, not little boys, not little girls, other than their families. They're big families, cousins, second cousins, third cousins, we call them extended families. And that constituted the whole safety zone and the security of every individual. So God is telling Abraham to pull himself and his immediate nuclear family and his retainers and his animals out of that safety and to go into something that he's not quite sure about. So on what basis would Abraham have to do this? Well, because he had faith that God was speaking to him and that God does not lie. God does not joke. God does not kid around. And it seemed important to God to get Abraham to do that, so Abraham did it. And it was accounted unto him as faith. Our faith is different. Because what they did not know for sure, but could only suspect. We have seen with our eyes. We have been to Christmas before. We know what happens in the cave of Bethlehem. We know all the story. We are there, we are hearing the angels singing over the shepherd's field outside Bethlehem. We know about the census that uh, in the reign of uh, Caesar Augustus is taken, which brings all these uh, Jews back to their hometowns to be enlisted, to be enrolled so that they could tax them. So we have seen what they did not see. How great is their faith? Just the other day we were reading about how uh, Christ tells, uh, tells Thomas, you know, blessed are, uh, more blessed are those who have not seen and who have yet believed. So those faithful ones whom we honor today, and the patron saints of many of you here today, uh, are more blessed because they believe what they had not seen. How tragic that we see poor old Europe turning its back on its Christian roots, having seen it now pretends it doesn't see. And how many in our society are like that? How foolish, how sad. What must we do? We must pray for those people. We must pray very earnestly for those people. 
that they will open their eyes and open their ears. Because what is going to happen in just a few days in the cave of Bethlehem is everything. The fulfillment of thousands of years of hoping and praying, of faithfulness, in the face of not very great evidence. Just trust in God. These are wondrous times for us. And the Church puts these things in our mind and lays these things in our heart for a reason. The Church is saying this is the best way to prepare for Christmas. Get ready for Christmas. And we think, oh, my gift list. Oh, when am I going to go to the mall? Getting ready for Christmas. What must I buy and bake? Getting ready for Christmas. The Church gives us this morning the list (laughs) of what we must do to prepare to receive Christ truly. To receive Him faithfully. For the whole thing is the fulfillment of faithful Israel. And the beautiful Christmas carols that you and I will be singing on Friday and on Sunday when we gather here for Christmas and the Sunday after Christmas, the best of those carols are just about this. They get it right. Because even though uh, the, uh, the, the leadership in the West may have gone crazy, the, uh, the people kept their eye on what was true. And their hearts wanted that. And the Christmas carols are uh, enshrining these great truths. They come, after all, from the great age of faith. I was reading the other day on the internet that uh, it's being suggested that the text of the Messiah be changed. Because it's become such a, 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 a ritual thing to do, you know, to listen to the Messiah at Christmas time, that uh, people still want to do it, and after all, the music isn't so bad. But, you know, then we have to go and we have to hear all these things about, you know, Christ. And there are some people in the audience who have paid good money for their tickets, and they don't believe that. And we're making them uncomfortable. So maybe we should set other texts to God knows what. Well, that's silly. And uh, the Gospel this morning is saying, don't be silly. This is not... uh, These are not Aesop's fables that we're dealing with. That's why in the epistle it reminded us that many women were sawn asunder, (laughs) that they were burned at the stake, that they were killed for this faith. And they were. This is serious business. And you remember, I'm always quoting Father Alexander Schmemann, who used to say, it's important to be serious about serious things. It's all right to joke around and relax and, like St. Anthony said, unstring the bow to relax from time to time. We need that. But when something serious is on the table, to take it seriously. That's the important thing. What a beautiful gospel and what a beautiful epistle we had this morning. What wonderful things they lay in our hearts. And may we have the grace to spend time with that gospel and with that epistle for the rest of this week as we prepare the final days, the final hours of this year's fast for the feast of Christmas and Theophany. Amen.